And thanks for being here. Take your Bible, turn to 1 John. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're starting today the book of 1 John, and we will walk through it piece by piece all the way up into the Christmas season. But I didn't want to just jump right into 1 John without putting it in its context. And so I brought a little timeline with me this morning that you'll see up here behind me so that we understand uh, where this book of 1 John fits, not only within John's history, but within the world's history. So AD 28 to 30 is the approximate date for Jesus's public ministry. This is from the time that he was baptized and tempted. Uh, he starts calling disciples. He teaches those disciples. He teaches large, large crowds. The crowds begin to shrink. Um, he is the Messiah. He's betrayed, arrested, crucified, resurrected, and ascends up in those dates. And after that, from AD 30 to about AD 70, John was one of the primary pastors in the church in Jerusalem, along with the other disciples, mainly Peter. Um, about AD 66, the Jewish people decide that they are tired of living under Roman rule. And so they begin to form a rebellion. And by AD 70, Rome has had enough of that rebellion and they just lay waste to Jerusalem. So much so that if you get on a plane from Houston, Houston Texas, fly to Tel Aviv, get off the plane in Tel Aviv, drive to Jerusalem, you will see the ruins that the Romans left from AD 70. And at that same time, as the the, the conflict is heating up. Christians begin to leave Jerusalem. They didn't want to stick around for that. And so John uh, leaves Jerusalem and goes to Ephesus. Now, the Apostle Paul was really the primary uh, starting, founding pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so Paul watched over the church for many years. Uh, but about uh, AD 81, uh, John begins to kind of take it under his wing. And not just one church, but all the churches of that region. And in that window, AD 85, 85 to uh, 90, the Gospel of John is written. Uh, within the next window, 90 to 94, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written. Uh, Domitian becomes the emperor of the Roman Empire around this time, and he begins to inflict full-scale uh, persecution on Christians. And in that persecution, John is sentenced to prison on the island of Patmos, and it's there that uh, he receives the vision of Revelation, the book that we know as the last book of the Bible. And after his imprisonment, he's allowed to return back to Ephesus uh, between AD 96 and 100, where he is laid to rest. So that's First John in its context. Now, uh, if you went home today, and uh, after your customary Sunday afternoon nap, which is a prerequisite for being a human, um, and uh, you pick up your Bible, and you go to First John chapter 1, and you begin to read, it would take you about 15 minutes or less to read the book of First John. So it's very short. But as you're reading it, you would wonder to yourself, what is the main point of this letter? Uh, John is a, is a non-linear thinking person. He uh, thinks in pictures, not in arguments. You know people like this, that you're, you're having one conversation and then they move on to another conversation and then another one, but then they eventually bring it back to the original one. If you are a linear thinking person, that 
kind of thing drives you crazy. If you are a linear thinking person, meaning you kind of think in propositions and in arguments, uh, you will gravitate towards the first of the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they are written in linear order. They're called synoptic Gospels because they give us a synopsis of Jesus's life. They start with his birth and they kind of end with his ascension and they go through in an orderly manner. If you read the Gospel of John, you know that it's not the same thing. In fact, he puts some things that happen at the end in the very beginning of his gospel and some things that happen in the beginning of Jesus's life towards the end of his gospel because he doesn't think in those terms. He thinks in pictures and he has a main point that he wants you to get. But because he doesn't think in clear propositions and arguments, that point is sometimes hard to discover. Thankfully, in his gospel and specifically in the epistle of 1 John, he tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. And I want to show those four things to you. So 1 John chapter 1 Verse 4, he says this. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Then chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Um, Chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Some false teachers had come into this area of Asia Minor. And he's writing this letter to warn them about these false teachers. And more than just warn them, he's teaching them true and consistent doctrine. And then chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So by the time we get to the Christmas season, we will have finished 1 John. If we've done this book of the Bible justice, we will have accomplished those four things. First, that you would be living with complete joy, which is what we're talking about today. Second, that you would be living as best you can through the power of the Spirit, apart from sin. Third, that we would all know what is great and whole, true Jesus Uh, doctrine and be warned of any kind of false teaching. And the fourth thing and final thing is that all of us, by the time we're finished with this letter, should know with confidence that we have eternal life. These are his motivations for writing this letter. So let's start. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and uh, proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So he says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. If you've read the Gospel of John, you remember that he starts the Gospel uh, in a very similar manner. Turn very quickly to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I want to show you the similarities of these two books of the Bible. John, chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, that's how... First John started. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So that's just a, a little sample, a little taste of how the, the beginnings of First John and the beginnings of the Gospel of John are essentially same, the same. But if you read 
all of chapter 1 of 1 John and all of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, you would see even more of the same words. Now, the Gospel of John is written, specifically its introduction, to show us and to tell the story how Jesus was revealed to the world. God creates everything in six days. On the seventh day, he rests in Built into his creation was our ability to choose right and wrong. And just like us, Adam and Eve chose wrong. They reached for the fruit that they weren't supposed to have. And now fellowship with God has been broken. But God has a plan. He had always had a plan um, when that happened. And he loves the world. And so he starts sending his messengers. He starts sending his prophets. He starts sending signs, symbols, so that the people of God will know that there is a Savior that is coming. And all through the history of the people of God, they're waiting this sa- for this Savior, uh, the one who would reconcile God and man to restore that fellowship. And when it came time for that Savior to appear, who does God send? Does God send an angel? No. Does he send an agent? No. Does he send a messenger? No. Does he send a prophet? No, he sends his only begotten son. And John's gospel and the introduction of that gospel tell us how Jesus was revealed to the world. Now, 1 John tells us how Jesus was revealed to us. Because look at what 1 John says. It uses personal words. Not just that Jesus was revealed to the world, but Jesus was revealed to people, to individuals. That life was made manifest, verse 2. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to who? To us. This is the kind of God that we worship today who is able to do public revelation and personal revelation. Even John experienced this. Bible commentators tell us that some of Jesus' disciples were actually John the Baptist's disciples before they were Jesus' disciples. And many believe that John was actually one of these disciples. And so one day, uh, John and Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, are with John the Baptist. They're following him. They're with him. They're in his entourage. They're in his crew. And John is baptizing people just as he did every day. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears on the scene. Now, at this time, no one knew who Jesus was outside of his own family. But no one had any kind of Messiah expectations on him. But as soon as John the Baptist sees Jesus, he turns to his disciples, John And Andrew and says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Andrew and John, they decide to follow Jesus for the afternoon just to to do a little investigation. They even spend the night in the same town that Jesus spent the night in that night. But then a little time passes. John goes back to Galilee where he was from. And he's fishing with his brother uh, James and his father Zebedee. Because that's what they did. They were fishermen. And here comes Jesus along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he says to John and James, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There was a public revelation at Jesus' baptism, but there was also a personal revelation to John. Jesus has been revealed publicly to the whole world between A.D. 28 and A.D. 30, but he has also personally revealed himself to you. And you're like, no, I, haven't, I haven't seen him. I haven't touched him. I, I can't echo these things with John. I, I, I wasn't there. And that's true. We know from the scripture that Jesus had 12 disciples. 
We know from the scripture that Jesus had 72 disciples. And after he ascends up into heaven, there are 120, according to Acts chapter 1, of his disciples gathered together in an upper room uh, trying to wrap their minds around what has happened. So let's just say that Jesus had 120 disciples. He probably knew most of their names. He, he probably knew all the names of those 72 disciples, and he definitely knew the 12 very well. And even among the 12, he had three that he spent the most time with, Peter, James, and John, our John. And you would think that that was an experience that we should envy. And it is. That, that would have been unbelievable. Not envy in a sinful way. I'm not giving an excuse to sin today. But in a godly way, you think, oh man, I, I, I wish that I was there. I wish I had that experience. But Jesus was already thinking ahead. Because while that was an amazing experience, it was limited. He could only be with one group of people at one time, saying one thing at one time. So that's why in the context of that thinking, he says to his disciples, it's actually good for you that I'm not sticking around forever. I'm ascending up to the Father, but I'm going to give you a gift. And that gift we know as the Holy Spirit. And so there among that 120 after Jesus' ascension on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, lands on them with a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire. And now the Holy Spirit is given to us. And what is the Holy Spirit called in the New Testament? But the Spirit of Christ. You're right. You're not able to put your hands on Jesus' hands. You're not able to see with your physical eyes, Jesus' physical eyes. But he prepared for that. And he gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So while he's been revealed to the world publicly, he can also be revealed to you personally. And aren't those the stories that we tell? When you tell of the work that God has done, do you tell somebody else's story? No, The most powerful story is the one that you can tell about your own experience. So in the spirit of that, I'm going to tell you somebody else's story. Uh, (laughs) Last week after church, everybody was leaving. This uh, this man came up to me after church was over. He's like, I got to tell you a story. And and so uh, I'm like, let me hear it. He said, a few months ago, I went into the Christian bookstore and... uh, was in a season where, man, I just was just dry spiritually. And I walked into the bookstore and I didn't even know why I was there. In fact, I kind of got angry. This is my words uh, of inter- interpreting what he said to me. kind of got angry that I was there and frustrated. And so he said, I, I turned around to-, to walk out. But as I was turning around to walk out, I saw you. Uh, you, me. Uh, I-, I was shopping. You were shopping there in the Christian bookstore. And he said to me, I didn't want you to see me leaving empty-handed. And... Uh, <laughs> And I was like, I, re- I respect that. I respect that. But I said, you know, no pressure to that every time you have to go into a bookstore with me, you have to buy something. Uh, no need to pretend. Uh, I go in and look a lot. And if the deals aren't right, I'm, I'm out of there quick. <laughs> so he's like loiters. He loiters until I leave uh, so that, uh, you know, I don't see him leaving empty handed. And why he's loitering, he, he's telling me this story. He said, I I saw a book title that was really kind of interesting and appealing, and I picked it up off the shelf. I turned it around. I read the back cover. I thought maybe it would be interesting. And he said, so I bought it, and I took it home. And then his eyes lit up as he's telling me this last Sunday. And he said, my life is different. What what I read in that book, it it, it changed me, and and I gave it to my wife, and it changed her. And now our kids are different. We've been giving it out to some friends of ours, and their lives are different, and I just wanted you to know what God has done in me this summer. 
It's personal revelation. Jesus was not just revealed to the world. That revelation came and knocked on your door. And that is what John is starting his letter with. Jesus revealed to the world, but Jesus also revealed to us personally. And then verse 4, what does it say? And we are writing, or verse 3, excuse me. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed publicly to the world, personally to John. And what does John do? Does he sit on that revelation? Does he begin to go and compare his story with other people? No, he proclaims it so that they can have a personal revelation of Jesus Christ. And and that's what we are doing here today. Now you may be like, man, God has never personally revealed himself to me. I'm not hearing God right now. That's why we cannot underestimate or overemphasize the importance of the word of God. Because if you're here today and you're like, I'm not hearing God's voice, I pray he, he, he doesn't, you know, he, he's not answering me, he's not speaking to me. Listen, this word is revelation every time. Every time it's revelation. Now I'm going to be real honest with you. Sometimes I open it up and I read it in the way and hear it in the way that you hope, would hope that your pastor hears it. Like Jesus is saying it to me fresh and anew. But I'm going to be real honest with you. Sometimes I open it up and I read it and it feels like he has to uh, yell a million miles across a deep chasm for it actually to, to get to me. So sometimes the revelation is not always as fresh as I would like, but it's always there. It's always there. And what John is saying is when you've received that kind of revelation, then you proclaim that to somebody else. You don't sit on that. If you have a testimony of what God has done for you personally, you don't just write that down in your journal and keep it for yourself. You proclaim it. And when you proclaim it, then fellowship happens. Fellowship with each other. More importantly, fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. Reconciliation to God. And then verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now in my Bible, when it says our joy, there's a little number one next to the word our, and you go down and it says some of those manuscripts say your, and that may be why your translation of the Bible says so that your joy may be complete. And my translation says our joy. There's a lot of discussion about which one it is. What is John saying? Is Is he writing this letter so that his joy will be complete in the writing of the letter? Or is he writing the letter so that his readers Their joy will be complete. Well, the conclusion that most every commentator comes to is yes. Yes. He's writing so that his joy will be complete in proclaiming the revelation of Jesus Christ to them. And he's also knowing that as they read it and as Jesus is revealed to them personally, their joy will be complete. Complete, it means full, means filled full, it means to the limit. Can you imagine having that kind of joy? Joy filled to the fullest limit. And you're, if you're like me, you're thinking, that sounds nice, but yeah, right. Maybe a moment, maybe a moment of that kind of joy. Full, maximum joy. But a lifestyle of that, consistency of that, yeah, right. 
I want to show you a story. John chapter 5. Jesus is going to heal this man and ask him a question about his healing. And I think it may be the same question that he's asking us today about our joy. John chapter 5. And it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called uh, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now the reason that they were all laying around this pool is because they believe when the water was stirred up, the first one of them into the pool would receive healing for their affliction. It says when, um, verse 5, one man who was there uh, had been an invalid for 38 years. Verse 6, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now I find it kind of honest, if I'm being honest today, a little ridiculous that Jesus asked this man that question. Do you want to be healed? Because I mean, what's the obvious answer? The obvious answer is yes. Uh, I've been an invalid. I've been uh, uh, disabled in this way for 38 years. And I'm lying here day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, trying to be the first one down in the pool. And you have the audacity to ask me, do I want to be healed? It seems like a, a ridiculous question, doesn't it? I mean, maybe the question he's asking us today seems same level of ridiculousness. Do you want joy? Well, of course I want joy. But look, look at what happens in this story. The man never asks, answers his question, does he? In fact, what he does answer is um, all the excuses why he can't be healed. I mean, and what are his excuses? History. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, waiting for those waters to be stirred up. And when they were stirred up, he he says to Jesus, I don't have anybody to help me. And by the time I crawl down there, it's too late. History. Some of us, when we heard the question, do you want joy? All we thought of is all the reasons why that joy would not be possible for us. And for some of us, it's history. It's, I've never experienced that kind of joy or I had it for a moment and then it went away and disappeared. What was his second excuse? His second excuse for why he had not received healing was what? People. Well, they get down there before me and I don't have anybody to help me in. Same reason that we would give for not having a full measure of joy, right? I I would have a full measure of joy if not for my husband, if not for my kids, if not for my boss, if not for my neighbors, if not for my mom, if not for my dad, if not for my in-laws, if not for that friend that's kind of being weird right now. I, I would have joy if not for people. And those are valid excuses. His excuses for not receiving healing, totally valid, had a lot of history, had been there for a long time. 
People were a problem. No one to help him in. Other people getting in there faster than him. Valid excuses if Jesus had not been the one asking the question. But Jesus was the one asking, do you want to be healed? I think Jesus is the one saying to us today, do you want joy? And we can have all of our excuses. And in a vacuum, those excuses would be totally valid, except for he is the one saying, do you want joy? Now, what I'm not saying, this is not just flippant religious talk. Oh, if you believe in Jesus, everything gets better. I'm saying something better than that. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now we've got to give John a hard time here, right? Because essentially he's just ripping off Jesus when he writes First John, because what does Jesus say? These things I have spoken to you. What did John say? These things I have written to you. Jesus says that your joy may be full. John says so that your joy may be complete. So essentially he's starting his epistle by just quoting Jesus here. So Jesus says, if you abide in my love by keeping my commandments, you will abide in my joy. Because he says, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. See, what we're not talking about today, we are not talking about asking God to rearrange our situation so that we have a clear path to joy. That's what most of us want. God, I have this obstacle. This person is in my way and they steal my joy. This deal is is hard for me and I don't like this pressure and the work thing. If you could just part the seas, then I would have a clear path to joy. And Jesus is saying, no, what I have given you is better than that because I've taken my joy, which is full in the Father and I have placed it in you. So we're not talking about manufacturing joy. We're not talking about putting a spiritual uh, spin on a very real life situation. We are talking about just simply connecting with the joy of Christ that already lives in us. But there will be some things that affect your experience of joy. This is the difference between living on earth and living in heaven. In heaven, you will have joy to the maximum limit and it will always be there and nothing will affect it. But there are some very real life things that affect our experience of joy. And what the scripture is telling us, 1 John, the words of Jesus, that if you will abide in Christ then joy is yours. Now, if you are abiding in Christ and and you can't seem to get a hold of joy, not that you're perfect, because none of us are perfect, not that you get it right every time, not that you couldn't do more, but if in general you are with all your heart and all your soul seeking Christ, but for some reason you just can't get your arms around joy, then I think that you need to think about that. Four or five years ago, I was, I was speaking about the same topic, not from the same scripture, but the idea of joy. And after it was over, 
this young woman came up to me and, and uh, she said, uh, I have some mental, uh, mental health issues that require me to, to take medicine. And I've been listening to what you've been saying. I've been listening to the Bible. And, and I'm wondering if you think that maybe I should stop taking my medicine. And I first said, listen, I am only qualified barely to take Tylenol. So to speak into your very real situations is out of my depth by a long shot. And I said, I'm pretty sure that even you and I are not the best people to answer that question here. I would go and ask that question to your doctor and I would go and ask that question to your family and see what they say back. Because the, the reality is that some of us came in and that is a real issue for us. And listen, you're doing all that you can to abide in Christ. And with good faith and good effort in Jesus' name, through the power of the spirit, you're doing your best, but you can't get your arms around joy. Then it means something else is wrong. Because the scripture promises us when we abide in Christ, then joy is our birthright. And so if you can't get your arms around that, something else is wrong. And I would go and see a counselor if I were you. And there's no shame in that. I can give you the one that I've seen in the last six months. Now, some of us were firstborn uh, go-getters and to even ask for help means that we've failed. And if that is you and, and even reaching out for help um, or even guidance would mean that you didn't measure up, you gotta put that aside because these are serious issues because joy is yours in Christ. And he has a plan for you. But for most of us, it's not a health issue that we're talking about. It's an abiding issue. We don't have joy because we don't abide in Christ. We don't have joy because we don't abide in the word of God. We don't have joy because we don't abide in prayer. At best, most of us are doing just a drive-by of prayer and we're going in to abide in, in something else. You abide in Christ and the full measure of joy is yours. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, a famous theologian and pastor. He said, the best translation for 1 John chapter one, I write these things to you so that your joy may be complete is I write these things to you so that your joy may remain complete, which resonates with me, right? Because we do, we all have these moments, these picturesque, perfect moments where we get a little taste of that joy, but then we kind of come back to the normal level. But he said the best translation is that the fullness of joy would remain. And think about if that's true, what it would have cost John to write those words that his joy would remain full when he has to leave Jerusalem because of conflict, that his joy would remain full when he would see his own brother beheaded because of their faith in Jesus, that his joy would remain full even as all the other apostles and disciples are losing their lives in Jesus' name, his friends, his partners, his heart and soul partners in ministry that his joy would remain full as he's carrying the burden of all these churches of Asia Minor, that his joy would remain full as persecution breaks out in his part of the world, that his joy would remain full as he's caught in the midst of that persecution, that his joy would remain full as they put him on a boat and they sail him to the island of Patmos, that his joy would remain full day after day and week after week and month after month while he was in prison there. That your joy may remain full even though you have a terrible boss that your joy may remain full even though your kids don't succeed the first time. That your joy may remain full even though your marriage is a little out of sync right now. That your joy may remain full even though the income is not flowing in the way that you would like it to flow. That your joy may remain full even though you're single right now and you wish you were married. That your joy may remain full while you're 
in your day-to-day -day job waiting on your dream job, that your joy may remain full. When Amanda and I lived in England, before we had kids, we decided to join the gym. And uh, what I mean is Amanda decided to join the gym and they were doing a two-for-one deal. And so uh, we joined the gym. When we would get there early in the morning, I had to go because we only had one car and it was a stick shift that you had to use with your left hand. And so she didn't want to, to learn how to do that over there. And so I would drive her to the gym and we would go in and she would go her way and I would go my way. And my way was to do one set of one exercise and then go back out into the car and listen to the radio. And so that's what we did day after day. And one day she comes out after her much longer workout and says, I just took this, this class called SPIN. Um, it's known here as cycling. And uh, it was amazing. You have to do it with me. And then she kind of challenged my manhood a little bit. And so the next day uh, we went in and instead of me going my way, I went her way and we went into this class. If you don't know what a spinning class is or a cycling class, you can imagine riding your bicycle with somebody screaming at you the whole time. That's essentially what it is. And so we work out like crazy and it was such an amazing workout that from then on, she just went inside and I just sat in the car. That's how good a workout it was. I didn't bother going back into the gym the rest of the time. But when we signed up, they gave you a consultation. You know, um, they're going to do your measurements and stuff. And if you're going to sign up for the gym this week, which we fully support health and stewardship of your health and all that and stuff. Uh, what the consultation is, is the consultation is they're going to do two things. Number one, they're going to tell you how overweight you are, which maybe you are, maybe you're not. Uh, I was. And, uh, and they were going to tell you how... Uh, damaged your heart is if you don't work out. And this is a very bad experience, this consultation. And so as a part of it, they test your resting heart rate. You guys know what your resting heart rate is. It's essentially your heart rate right now while you're just sitting there. And so they tested that and they recorded that. And then they made us go and do some exercises. And then they recorded our heart rate after that. And you guys are a bunch of scientists and a real bunch of smarties. And so you know that after you exercise, your heart rate goes up, but then it eventually comes back down to your resting heart rate. And you can exercise, you can move it up and down, but eventually comes back to your resting heart rate. That's what we're talking about today. That because Jesus has been revealed to the world and Jesus has been revealed personally to you and his joy is in you, your resting heart rate should be joy. Listen, there are gonna be some things that move it up and down. You're gonna get some of those picturesque once in a lifetime moments where your happiness is just off the charts and your heart rate's gonna go up and you know that you can't live there, but instead of just going all the way back down to normal, you just come back to your resting heart rate of joy. There are gonna be some things that come along the way and, and they're gonna threaten your joy. In fact, they're not just gonna threaten it, they're gonna steal it. And you're gonna despair and you're gonna be down, and you're gonna be hurt and you're gonna be sad. But after you come out of that, do you come back to your resting heart rate of joy? In heaven, you'll just have one heart rate of joy. But in this earth, there are gonna be some things. But Jesus has been revealed to the world. He's been revealed personally to you. As you abide in him, he puts his joy in you. Joy is your birthright. full measure, the full extent. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you inspired John 
to write these things so that our joy may be complete. God, and we pray now in the the name of Jesus for those of us who came in with a spirit of heaviness. We pray that they would leave with a lightness in their feet that they have not known in a long time. God, we pray for those who have come unnecessarily anxious. Even though you've maybe not resolved the circumstance or the situation, we pray that they would leave with the measure of peace that gives fruit to complete joy. And Jesus, most of all today, we're not trying to drum up some kind of emotion. We're not trying to create something that doesn't exist. We're just trying to find your joy that you've already placed in us. So we abide in you. In Jesus' name we pray.